Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of everyone's favorite B-Movie podcast, or at least the six of you that listen, uh, the Attack of the B-Movies podcast. The last couple of episodes I've done mid-80s to early 90s movies, movies I remember watching as a kid that were on either cinema, generally Cinemax or HBO. Uh, I'm, going back to, I'm going back to a classic on this one, and this is actually one of my favorite movies, and I saw this when I was a kid, and then I later saw it as part of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie, and um, they mock it, but to me, it's a, I mean, they mock a few movies I think are good, and to me, this is one of them that I think is actually a pretty good movie, but it actually was a movie that was released in 1955, it was originally released with, I believe, a double bill of the. It was released with a double bill of an Abbott and Costello movie. So this is a classic B movie, right? When they used to do double features, right? And the movie I'm talking about is the 1955 classic This Island Earth. This This Island Earth, is directed by Joseph Joseph Newman and Jack Arnold. It's actually based on a novel of the exact same name, creative, right? Uh, by Raymond Jones. The novel, well. I guess the novel, I guess there was a story version of it published in the, um, back in the day when people had magazines that were good. There was a magazine called Thrilling Thrilling Wonder Stories, and they released the novel in three segments. Well, we all know what a novelette is. Actually, I think we call them novellas now. But they, they uh, released them in the June 1949 issue, initially, and then December, and then I want to say February 1950, I remember reading. Uh, the film stars Faith Damari. I can't pronounce her name. She's a, she was great. I thought she was a great, fantastic B movie actress, and I did an article about her. Faith Damargu. It's a French name, and I'm not good at saying it. I'm really sorry if I messed it up. Uh, it also stars Jeff Morrow, who's a name that some of you might might know. Jeff Morrow is known for other films from the era. Basically, it's a it's it's an A list of B movie actors from the fifties, right? So he was in he was in the Creature That Walks Among Us. It also stars um, Rex Reason. There's a name for you, right? Rex Reason. And Rex Reason was in a whole slew of movies too back in the day. Uh, also in the Creature That Walks Among Us. And let's see who else? Uh, Lance Fuller, who plays uh, Jeff Morrow's buddy in this movie. And he's best known for his work in, uh, well, The Bride and the Beast. Um, a lot of these guys started off in Westerns, and then he was in the, the the Silent Earth. And who else? There's one name you're all going to know. Russell Johnson. Doesn't ring a bell? Maybe his second, uh, maybe his most well-known character, Will. Russell Johnson played the professor in Gilligan's Island. He's in this movie as a... Scientist, oddly enough, right? So, cool. it was really cool to see him in this in this movie. I liked it a lot. I, I mean, I liked the movie a lot, but it was it's it's always neat when you see an actor that you're like, hey, I always I only knew him from one thing, and look at this here he's you know doing a bunch of other stuff. Um, there's also a guy named uh, well, um, Robert Nichols is in this. He plays a uh, he plays Rex Reason's buddy in this. Rex Reason plays a character named Cal Meacham. But uh, Robert Nichols is known for... He was in The Thing. He was in The Out-of-Towners. Uh, this Island Earth, of course. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He, All these guys... All these actors and actresses had... Car- movie and TV careers both before and after. I mean, granted, none of them were really in anything... 
major, well, except the professor, who, or except Russell Johnson, who was the professor, right? So, any movie that's good enough to uh, be lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000 is good enough for this podcast. So, Rex Reason plays De- Dr. Cal Meacham. Cal Meacham is a scientist, and, you know, this is back in the jet era, right? Jets just came out. He's also a jet pilot. He, uh, he's flying his plane in... No, I take that back. We meet Cal, and he is being interviewed by the press, and he's like a rock star, right? And they're asking him about, I want to say it was nuclear power, nuclear fission, and he makes the comment how he, he makes a comment related to how, well, once we get electronics, we could we'll be putting the horse in front of the cart, and we can enter the push button age, and you know this typical '50s kind of thing. So he hops in his private jet. It's a lock. It's actually a Lockheed T thirty three shooting star, and he flies back to his lab, which I want to say the lab the gate for the the lab is the same gate you see in like nineteen other movies from the day. Anyways, he um, he's coming in for his landing. He radios in. He talks to his buddy uh, Joe Wilson and to the uh, air traffic controller that's there. It's like a private airfield. And it's funny because in the Mystery Science Theater version, they're like, Keanu Reeves in my own private airfield. But anyways, I digress. So as he's coming in, he loses control of... Eh, he doesn't lose control, but all the controls go dead. He can't control the plane, and it starts glowing green, like pulsating green, right? So he lands, uh, his buddy Joe comes running over to make sure he's okay, and they kind of, he goes, Did I, you know, they kind of discuss it, and he's like, all right, don't tell anybody because they'll think we're crazy or whatever. But he wants to know what the hell caused this to happen. So the next scene, they're in the lab, and this is back, and the guys in Mystery Science Theater said this, so I'm not taking credit for this. This is back when science didn't seem, in movies, science didn't seem to have a reason or any kind of rhyme or anything to why it worked the way it did. So he's looking through, like, what, he's looking through a periscope-looking thing. I'm assuming he's working with something radioactive, and he's looking through, like, a protective lens thing so he doesn't look directly at it. And it looks like he's dropping, like, a mini monolith from 2001 into a toaster. Everything shorts out, and he goes, oh, we blew the, uh, what was it called? <sighs> we blew the oh we blew the condensing unit. Can you get me another one? And the condensing unit that they show it, it like, looks like a car battery and it's giant, right? And Joe tells him, "Oh, we're out of them." And he goes, "I put an order in last week and I got these. I thought they were in." The, and there's these tiny little condensers, and they start laughing. He goes, "Well, these are obviously a joke. Somebody's playing you, playing you." He goes, "That's what I thought." Then I put one on the bench and it held. And I don't remember what the number he says. Some massive amount of power. So he goes, well, what was it? He wants to find out more about the company. Let me think a second. Mm. As they're talking about these, there's a knock at the door, and a courier drops off an envelope, like a big, thick envelope, right? They open it up, and there's a book in there about a device called an, inter- an interocitor. Neither of them know what an interocitor is, and really, it's, you know, they're scientists. They're like, well, what is this thing? And they start reading through it, and start saying how this thing can build roads. It can do this. It can do do just all kinds, anything you want, it can do. And Cal's like, well, let's build one. And Joe goes, well, how are we going to build one? There's no no address on here. We don't know where to buy the parts. 
And Joe says, well, obviously, when you sent out to, I think they called I think the company was Supreme Electronics. It doesn't really matter. When you sent out for the condensers, somebody intercepted the, the message. And keep in mind, this is before email, kids. They talked to an, an old adult or an older adult about, like, teletypes and fax machines. No, it was before fax machines, even. So they send out to the, um, they send the list of parts for the interocitor out. Sure enough, all these boxes arrive. And they, they're taking them all out of the box, and they're laying them out, and they start building this giant, well, not really giant, it's the size of like a, I don't know, like the size of a desk, and it's got like this triangle on it, right? So the thing talks to him and tells him what to do, and he turn, he inserts this disc, this metal disc, and he turns a knob. Suddenly, a man appears on the picture. It's a bald guy with a big forehead named Exeter. Exeter is who is played by Jeff Morrow. Jeff Morrow, was he in... Was Jeff Morrow in a... No, couldn't have been. I'm thinking of a different Morrow. Oh, yeah, he... No, he wasn't. I thought he was in the Twilight Zone movie, but that's a different... Uh... <coughs> that was a different guy. He was, in a t- he was in an episode of the TV series Twilight Zone back in 86, though. Anyways, so by building the Enterocitor, they deem that Meacham is smart enough and gifted enough to be part of a special research project by this guy, Exeter, who's very suspicious, right? And it's blatantly obvious, this guy, this is not, there's something up. And it's funny, because in Mystery Science Theater, every time they show him and he, he's done talking, they're like, put him not an alien. Because, come on, there's obviously something not right with this guy. So they tell him... He said he tells Meacham, meet me meet our plane outside on the airstrip at a certain time. And uh he goes, Alright. So the plane he hears the plane coming and it's real foggy. You can't see anything. And Cal not Cal, Cal's lead character, um what's his name? Joe. Joe says You couldn't a, a, a firefly could or a firefly would uh I don't know, something to the effect of a firefly couldn't land in this, it's so cloudy. And you hear the plane, and it lands. And the door opens, and there's no one flying the plane. It's remote-controlled. So Meacham gets in, and Joe's like, Cal, this is a bad idea. I don't want you to go. Yeah, this is a bad idea. He goes, oh, I'll be fine. And the plane has no windows or anything like that. So he falls asleep on the flight, and it lands in uh, what appears to be Georgia. And when he gets there, he's greeted by a woman named Ruth Adams played by Faith Demergue. And he tries to talk to her because they've met before, and she acts like they've never met before. So he gets a little, like, um, he's a little suspicious of this, and a little confused, maybe. And then he also meets this other guy named Brack, who's played by Lance Fuller. Brack is Exeter's right-hand man. Exeter's played by Jeff Morrow. And he gets suspicious of him, and there's a lot of other weird-looking guys there that look like Brack and Exeter with the big forehead and that. But it's also a who's who of science there. So, they're talking, he, he's at dinner, and he's talking to, to they're having a dinner, he's talking to uh, Ruth Adams, and um, they get up and they walk away, he wants to see his, his lab or whatever, and they run into, they run into um, Russell Johnson. So they go somewhere more quiet. They go to the lab. They go somewhere more quiet. They find out that they're being spied on, but it comes out that something's not right and that there's like a false, um, a hill that's like hollow. And they wanted to investigate it, but Ruth and um, Ruth and Steve, Ruth chickened out, so they ran off. And Ruth admits that she remembers Cal and that, you know, whatever. 
and um, I, I don't, I don't think they were ever like an, a couple, but you could tell there was something between them. So, Cal decides that we need to get out of here. You know, something's not right. We got to go. So they hop in. Uh, they hop in. I guess they used to call them Woodies, big old car with wood sides, right? And they're trying to run. They're trying to run away. And Cal and Ruth jump. They they stop the car and they're like, the only way we can make it is if we run for it. We got to get to the airfield. We got to get in a plane because there's a plane there. It's a prop plane. It's like if we can get in the plane, we can escape. We can get out of here. So they um they hop. Cal and Ruth hop out of the car and then Steve, aka the professor, takes off in the car. And sure enough, he gets blasted by the lasers that have been shooting at him and destroyed. Cal and Ruth make it to the make it to the aircraft. And they get in the aircraft, and they start flying off, and they see the entire facility with everybody in it incinerated. So, obviously, shit ain't right. They're obviously distraught about this, and all of a sudden, the plane starts glowing, and they get sucked into a flying saucer. Now's when the plot becomes... Well, now's when we find out what's really going on, right? So, they find out that, um... That Brack... Not Brack. That Exeter Brack and the rest of them from a planet called Metaluna, and that Metaluna has been at war with another planet, or, um... You know, it's funny, because they don't really... I guess they're Metalunans. I don't know. I don't really call, know what they're called. But they are in a, a war against, like, their archenemy, a, a group called the Zagons. So... The reason they were on Earth is they were trying to... They needed uranium deposits, and they needed scientists to help defend their planet. They're running out of power, so they need uranium, they need refined uranium, and that's what all these scientists were. They were all atomic physicists and electronic specialists. Of course, them being killed didn't help. So, on the way to his planet, he tells them how the gravity is so strong or whatever, you need to go in these tubes, and they adjust it. They go in these tubes, and they fill with smoke, and they they fall asleep, and they wake up, and they, uh, they get to see Metaluna as they're coming in. So, Metal Luna's under attack this whole time, right? Just throwing... The Zagons are throwing meteor or firing meteors at them. Which, okay, I, I get it. <laughs> but really, you don't, you don't have any other weapons than that. So they land safely, but the planet's being decimated. And it's got a night... They get off the planet, and it's an old-school, like... You could tell it's a painting, but it's an old-school, like, 50s, just fantastic sci-fi background. And uh, they go to meet Metal Luna's leader... Uh, a guy named Douglas Spencer, or not Douglas, <laughs> that's the actor's name. They call him the Monitor. He reveals that the uh, Metalunas were not only on Earth to seek help without telling anybody, but they wanted to relocate to Earth and that they were going to... They didn't believe humanity could handle living peacefully with them or coexist, so they were basically going to wipe us all out. So, um, Cal and Ruth... Exeter says he's going to protect them, and they, they don't believe him. They don't trust him, obviously, because why would they? They're ordered to go into this uh, thought transference chamber, and then they'll uh, get rid of their free will and whatever. Exeter is not a fan of this. He's a scientist, right? He's not a warrior. He's not, you know, whatever. So Exeter helps them escape. They don't really trust him, but they decide to. So they're on the run, and they're going to a location where, the sh where there's a ship so they can... Get away from Metaluna in a in a in um oh, what is it in, in a flying saucer in a spaceship right so 
they're on their way there, and there's this alien insect creature. It, it stands on two legs. It's the worst special effects in the movie. You can tell this guy's clearly wearing, like, slacks. And they're supposed to listen to the metal loon, and so Exeter tells them to move out of the way, and he moves, and Exeter explains how he's scared or whatever, and as he's walking by, it's got a claw hand, and it grabs Exeter's side and, like, rips out part of his side, right? So now he's really hurt, and he's bleeding. They get into the um, space... Spaceship, space saucer, or flying saucer, spaceship, whatever. And they leave the planet, and as they leave the planet, they're watching Metal Luna get destroyed. Um, the They call it a protective ion layer that was protecting it from the meteors. Obviously, not doing a job anymore. But the... They, um, what is his name? Exeter explains, now we're watching the... Uh, we're watching the planet heat up and become a, a radioactive sun. What they don't know is that the mutant has boarded the ship, right? So they're on their way back to Earth, and they put Ruth... Well, Ruth, Exeter, and Cal uh, are in the tubes because they have to readjust their, pre- their bodies for the pressure of Earth. And they start waking up, and they see the creature walking around, right? So... Ruth's tube is opening up, and her, this is another corny part. They're like, oh, put your hands on these rails. They're magnetic. They'll hold your hands. If your hands are made out of steel, sure. So her hands get free, and she runs away from the thing as it's trying to, like, catch her. And they're, it's chasing her through the ship. Or not through the ship, but through the bridge area where they're at. And eventually the pressure difference kills the thing off. So they're getting back to Earth, and Exeter's injured. And Cal uh, says, why don't you come with us? You have a lot of knowledge you could share. You could help us. We could work together. And he goes, no, no, I'm going to go out there and explore the universe and maybe find another Metal Luna, find somewhere to settle down. You know, we explore. I've always wanted to. And Cal says, you're lying. You used up all your fuel getting here. And if you don't come with us, you're, you're going to die. And Exeter's, you know... Decline, politely declines and says, no, there's nowhere for me here. Um, you guys get in the plane, because the plane was in the flying saucer. It was the same flying saucer. And he goes, uh, get in the plane and go ahead and go. So they leave, and the next scene you see Ex- Exeter slumping over, and then he eventually, I guess he eventually dies. I don't think they really ever show him dying. You see, see, the, see the saucer just burn up in the atmosphere, and... Uh, Turns into a fireball, hits the water, explodes. Movie ends. I'm not going to lie. It's a movie I enjoy watching. And when I was a kid, I saw it because I think my dad, we watched it on, God, I don't even know what channel we watched it on. I, I really don't. I think it was a great movie. I always liked it. It was Universal. Uh, Universal's, I think, first, oh, I think it was their first uh, science fiction movie. Uh, it, like I said, it ran as a double feature with Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. It had, uh, a, it, during the initial release, it was cited as having a well-written script, which I believe it did. It was based off a book that was well-received. Um, the special effects at the time were very good. And to be honest, you watch it now, and yeah, they're not today's special effects, but for the time, 1955, they were better than most movies out there from that time period. Um very vivid color for the time. It was by Technicolor, which, you know, was the gold standard for that for years. 
good good cast, you know, based off a good book. The cast again, like I said, they went on to star in lots of other stuff before and after, and uh, just an all around good movie to watch. It's 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 a thought provoking movie in the sense that these you know what these aliens want to do and then how they decide how he decides to save them and sac- basically sacrifices his own world right. So uh, they filmed it in 1954, back when they'd film like a movie in like a year. Uh, filming in California. I'm looking this up and reading it, to be honest. So, most of the Metal Luna sequence was directed by Jack Arnold. Uh, Universal was not happy with the footage that um, the other director, Newman, shot and had Arnold redo it. Arnold had already been a director of a few sci-fi films, and they trusted him better. But the sound effects, uh, all the stuff was pretty well done. But um, the mutant costume was horrible. He looked like he was wearing slacks. I read that the costume department said there originally was legs that matched the body, but they had trouble making it, making the legs work properly with the guy wearing them. So they scrapped it and put trousers on him instead. But I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, on the poster that I saw, the mutant does have the proper legs on him. It's a... It's a classic, man. It just is. I, I think it's a great movie, and uh, it's a good story. It's got a lot of good, um, a lot of good acting for what it is. It's got a seventy-one percent um, on Rotten Tomatoes. I want to say it's a five point nine on uh, IMDb. Here, I'll check it right now for you because that's what we have this wacky thing called the internet's for. Five point eight. You know, I highly recommend it. It's only an hour and twenty-seven minutes long. Seven minutes of that is beginning credits and end credits. So um, check it out. If you like it, let me know. If you hate it, let me know. <laughs> if you hate it, let me know. And um, I guess that's it for tonight's episode. So uh, I'd really like some feedback from you guys. I know I'm, I've am i been talking about getting a co-host, so if anyone out there wants to send a, uh, a message to me saying why they think they could be the co-host, I'd appreciate it. And... Um, I'd like you to have some movie knowledge. You don't have to be a genius. I'm not. I look stuff up all the time. I watch the movies, but that doesn't mean I remember all the actors and stuff that are in them unless there's somebody I see a lot. Uh, anyways, if you like it, like it, share it, keep watching, keep reading, and uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers.